Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. You know, I talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of using whatever platforms we have to make the world a better place. Those of us with large platforms, especially, have a responsibility to use them. Our guest this week is certainly using his. Adrian Grenier. He's an actor, filmmaker, musician, entrepreneur, and philanthropist who came to prominence as Vincent Chase in the hit show Entourage. Vince is a movie star, yeah, but I, I, I guess I'm in character now. I don't really look at myself as a movie star. I don't think Vince really even uh, thinks like a movie star. Socially responsible investing began in the late 1960s when investors began excluding stocks or industries from their portfolios based on business activities such as tobacco production or involvement in the South African apartheid regime. This past April, I was fortunate enough to join President Clinton to launch the Clinton Foundation Millennium Network in Los Angeles, a gathering of more than 600 young professionals poised to become the future leaders in public service and philanthropy. It's now my great pleasure to turn the floor over to the American actor, filmmaker, and social and environmental advocate, Adrian Grenier, who this morning became UN Environment's newest goodwill ambassador, at a very impressive event at the Empire State Building. Hi, I'm Adrian Grenier, and I'm on a mission to heal our relationship to money by making investments that seek more than ROI. We seek YBM, yields beyond money. Sorry, not sorry. So, I mean, I'm just going to dive right in, and I want to talk to you about all of the great work that you do and that you're doing But first, I want to give the listeners a little glimpse into who you are. So tell me about that, who you are and how you got started in all of this, in acting and activism, in everything that makes you you. Oh, man. Everything? You want everything? I know. (laughs) Well, everything that you are, that you feel good about. We don't have to get into like a therapy session, but if there's stuff that you are like, you know what? I'm proud of this part of who I am. I want to hear about that part. Yeah. I'm now 20 years in environmental work, about 20 years. And I've gone through many different incarnations uh, as an activist, some a little bit more strident and destructive and other times more constructive and balanced. And right now I'm in a really balanced place. I I actually moved to a farm and now I get to practice my love for the planet with my own two hands, actually uh, cultivating the soil and creating a regenerative farm and community here. So nature-based, heart-centered and grounded. That's incredible. And that's the dream. Tell me about your farm. Is it Are you growing things? Are you raising cattle? What are you doing on your farm? So the vision is to have, so I'm permaculture certified. I got my permaculture certification almost a year ago. And so leaning into that and the principles of permaculture and practicing on the land, the first principle of permaculture is to observe and interact, which means we have to see what is. We have to take 
inventory and connect with the natural energy flow of the land before we can start imposing our will upon it. Um, Let it inform our designs. Let it inform what the land needs. And it will tell you. So right now, that's the main phase that I'm in, just doing a lot of observation, taking notes, and and then ultimately starting to start slowly implement some of the, the big vision, which is CSA growing food, not only for ourselves, but also to bequeath to give to our neighbors using the Native American principle of thirds. So a third for us, a third to sell so we can bring in some revenue and then we give away a third. We have grand visions to eventually have a little tiny vineyard so that we could have our own vintage here. We'll do some aquacultures, some, uh, we have ponds, we have water, we have a river. So utilizing. It sounds amazing. Am I painting the dream here? I mean, yeah, it sounds like a lot of work, but it sounds like such like soulful, fulfilling work. And I think that when you think about farming, when you think about the way we have completely destroyed our food system and our food supply, to think of it in that sense, I think is really beautiful and something that that we need to to focus more on for sure. Well, here's the funny thing, because I started a nonprofit called Mobile Kitchen Classroom maybe 10 years ago, and it was to teach kids about the the effect of food on their health and the environment. So learning about food systems and then learning how to take charge of their nutrition independence. Food doesn't just magically appear, especially that fresh stuff like fruits and vegetables. Believe it or not, that tiny tomato took quite the trip before ending up in my sandwich and my stomach. Where does food come from? How does it get around the world? And why is it so important that everyone has access to quality, nutritious food? And this is because I grew up in New York and I didn't have those. My mom taught me. My mom was you know, very health conscious, but I, I, I recognized that there wasn't that education, that we did not learn about food. It was this abstraction that going to a supermarket and everything's wrapped in plastic. And it's, you know, we don't have that one to one direct experience. And also it's very, you know, I have two kids, a 10 and a seven year old, and it's really interesting because it becomes so difficult for them to really connect to what they are eating. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, I do have an organic garden here. They have been picking their own vegetables since they were toddlers, which has been really great. And they love, love vegetables because of that. But there is this sense of that nothing, that the food just shows up. That nothing has to go on between either cultivating or planting the seed and getting it to us. And it is a disconnect that is really unfortunate because I also think it has crept into the way we think about public health. And in in particular, I'm thinking about Flint, Michigan, and how the work that I did in Flint after the water crisis, which was absolutely horrendous. But, you know, you learn about lead poisoning and how there is no uh, cure or really treatment for lead poisoning. And all these young, young, beautiful children had lead poisoning from this, from corruption and greed. And the doctors in Flint had to prescribe vegetables so that they could get it to Flint through the government, through SNAP programs, because there are so many food deserts in Flint. And a food desert, for those that do not know, is when people live more than a mile away from getting any fresh food or produce. 
So a lot of what you find in the big cities in Michigan and Detroit and in Flint is convenience stores. So children are being raised on the bowl of apples and bananas that you would find in a 7-Eleven. And because the soil has been damaged so much, they're not even able to to create a community. Because my whole thing was like, you need a community garden. How do you not, if you have this problem and you're asking the government to bring in vegetables, how do you not create a community garden? And the soil is so damaged that they can't even do that. Yeah. So (laughs) for those reasons, I started that organization. But I I guess my takeaway now after all these years uh, and now finally being here on the farm is there's a reason why we, we end up taking the easy road to food production and to use pesticides and herbicides and chemical fertilizers. There's a reason because... Can we curse here? Yo, fuck yeah. Because this shit is hard. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard. I mean, mm. and, and to just, because also we're not investing enough in our farmers and, and in our food. Right. We want it cheaper, faster, and right. we want it to look pretty, but we don't want it to necessarily have that nu- nutritional depth. And that's on us, right? Like we, we have to start to educate ourselves and learn about what it really means to make food. And, and that way we have, now we can start to put the financial respect to the people that are creating our food because they work really hard for not a lot of reward. Yana Nino posted this on Wednesday, writing, I'm about to finish up my time in the fields and wanted everyone to know that we, farm workers, are paid $7 for two gallons of blueberries. How much do you pay for your blueberries? Uh, So there's less and less incentives for the everyday farmer to create that kind of food abundance on a small scale, because that's really what you need to do. It's what happens is when you start getting an agriculture that's on mass, that's when you start running into some of these issues because it's monocropping and it's just mass scale as opposed to being able to take care of and steward small independent food operations that can really put in the time and energy to care for the nuances and create that diversity and that resilience within the system. And so I, I'm a huge advocate of home gardens, community gardens as a first step. And really, that's what I look at. This is, uh, is a commu- it's a small piece of land that I get to take care of and uh, steward. And my, it's my I get to, <laughs> and I have to. So it's a get to, have to situation. And that's my, I think that's my ultimate contribution now to Mother Earth. Whereas before, I was sitting in an apartment in New York and telling everyone else how to do it and telling the government that they should do it or businesses, they need to do it. And I didn't have the agency really ultimately that I have today. And I recognize now that I have a lot of, you don't have to have a lot of soil to actually get your hands dirty. Right now, I'm advocating for everybody to get out there and grow something somewhere, even if it's on your windowsill, (laughs) and start to create that relationship with the earth.
I have a new plant addiction, house plant, indoor plant addiction. I mean, I wish you could see my office right now. I literally have propagation stations, experiments between dirt propagation versus water propagation, and it's everywhere. It has taken over my life. And I think it is because, especially in the last couple of years, we were home so much, but also I need to feel like I'm raising things. And my kids are at this age now where they don't really need the the constant. And actually, it would be hurtful if I was constantly nitpicking at, at them. So this has become my thing to raise. And it's been really inspiring for me. And I am calming and reminds me to breathe. And I have dirt under my fingernails pretty much constantly. And it's It feels really good and it is inspiring. And I'm wondering, like, what inspires you as an activist and how does that manifest itself in your art? In my art? Or is it is it all the same? Is your is what you're doing right now also your art? I I think absolutely. I'm for the first time getting to work with the greatest artist of all time, which is Mother Earth, nature. And together we are, we're making beauty here. We're creating like such an aesthetic um, beauty that it trumps everything else I've ever done or ever could do in acting or music or whatever. But for me, art has always been an expression of what I see. Like many other kinds of very special people who combine vocations and callings, And I'm going to use Wendell Berry as an example of a poet farmer, where what he gets from agriculture and culture are a seamless handshake in his life. In many ways, Carla works from the same kind of inspiration. And and the visions that I have of what's possible. So I close my eyes and I imagine a world and then I tell those stories and Either I'm telling them on a fictional level, or now I'm telling them here on the earth, in, in the land, telling the story of what, what, this, what this land will look like when it's revived, when we start to remove all the non-native species and start to mitigate some of the monocropping that did go on here and start to create more diversity. What is it going to look like? What kind of animals, what kind of new life will, come, will be introduced and come seemingly from nowhere? but will manifest spontaneously because we've created that fertile soil and we've created that, that space for them to, to come in. And so through investing at DuContra, my investment company, you know, for me, I see that as yet another creative expression, but this time creating plot points within investment and within industry. I guess I just have a big heart for, as Charles Eisenstein says, a, a more beautiful world, our hearts know is possible and trying to do what I can to make that actually manifest, create it, build it. You mentioned your company, DuContra Ventures, which focuses on aligning money with values. Why do we need to do that? What do you mean by that? And how, for my listeners, can they get involved and do that in their daily lives? Well, I I do believe that we all, on different levels, would benefit from healing our relationship to money, get into right relationship with money itself. I think we take it for granted in, in many ways, and, and we don't recognize how money can often create systems that are 
not necessarily benefit our deepest values, our ethics. And it's just, it's a journey that I've been on when I realized because I was climbing the ladder and I was just making more and more. And I had all the riches and the spoils of success, but I wasn't happier. And the world outside didn't seem to be getting better the more our economy grows. So I started to tug at that string and and explore what is this money thing? Why are we continuously looking to accumulate? And I recognized that money is a tool. It's what we use to share value, exchange value, and build and create our society and our world. It's an incentive for us to put in effort. But somehow along the way, we started to focus on money itself as the goal. How can I get more of it to store more of it, to hoard more of it, as opposed to how do we use money as that tool to create the world we want to see? And and so I had to clean up my act and start getting into that right relationship with money because, and it, and it starts with self. If I'm not, if, if I'm operating from a sense of scarcity and fear and you know, maybe tomorrow I, I'm going to need all this money, so I better hold on to it. If I'm operating from that level, it doesn't serve me or the, the world. So I had to really let go and start to become myself a, a person that is not looking to accumulate and accumulate, but actually looking to let it go, let it flow and put it in the right places. We have a saying that money is merely a tool and the, the spirit of the tool is determined by the hand of the user. So first, if I make sure that I'm thinking of, I'm getting my relationship to money in the right way, and then I can actually now deploy that capital to the best possible systems that will create the world that we hope to see. The hand of the user, it's a really important thing. And I think about social media, right? How it can be used for such wonderful things and organizing in ways that we've never organized before as as organizers and activists and advocates, but also can be used for such horrible things. So I do believe the hand of the user is probably the most important thing. I'm so interested in if you have any thoughts on how someone is earning a middle-class wage, say, and maybe has a 401k investment portfolio with their employer. How do we get their investments aligned with their values? Yeah, I think it's something that everybody has to ask themselves. Are they buying into sort of the, the capitalist imperative that you work harder and then maybe one day you'll be rewarded in the future? Or are you really looking about looking around and, and deciding what do I really need? What brings me deep satisfaction and fulfillment? And how do I align my actions and my effort and the work that I do to achieve that? Did you know that there are investment portfolios available that aim to align your investments with your values? This type of investing is called sustainable or socially responsible investing, and it serves the dual purpose of pursuing competitive returns while making a positive impact in society and the environment. So it aims to align your investments with your values. Millennials and women are leaders in this space. And I know it's easier said than done, and there's not one answer for everybody. There's no panacea. We all have to, I think, go through that work in recognizing how money has, in many ways, hijacked our our thinking and has certain incentives and imperatives that we are compelled to do. And sometimes 
at the detriment or compromising our deeper values. I look around and a lot of people are doing a lot of really unfortunate things just to make money. And so I, I don't think there's one. And sometimes you have to make those judgment calls. There are trade-offs in the world. And I'm not a complete naive romantic in that I think that we should just do away with our money system. Although I think over time, probably we need to transition out, but we first need to create those new systems. So this is early days. There's a lot of exciting new currencies coming about, crypto and, and such, that I think will iterate over time and give us more transparency, more access. And maybe, I don't know, if in our lifetime or sometime in the far future, we'll end up wanting to replace our centralized money system. And, and, I, and so I urge everybody to become that laboratory unto yourself where you're looking at your own relationship to money and whether or not it's serving you and more importantly, serving your greatest value of being of service here on the planet. So how do we do that? And I'm totally with you here, but I'm wondering when, you know, this is such a, a wonderful privilege to have this conversation and especially with you, because I know it comes from such a sincere, beautiful place in your heart. But I feel part of me feels like it's almost unattainable because we have families who are working four jobs between two adults just to put food on the table. And so to be able to really figure out how money plays into your own value system, I think is important no matter where you are. There's such a huge wealth gap. And I'm wondering if you think, do you think that there's like a role for business to lead the way out of some of these social and cultural uh, crises that we're talking about right now that we find ourselves in? And maybe that's the way to do it because businesses can be so much less polarizing than government. I just don't know how we get there when we're living in a society that feels like people have to work so hard to get food on the table and to make ends meet. And so I don't know that they have the luxury of reflecting upon what money means to them because it is a burden. It is a burden to make it. It is a burden to pay your rent to put food on the table. Eight out of 10 families are living paycheck to paycheck, one financial crisis away from total devastation. And so how do we blend what your vision is with the reality of how most people are living? For so long, I did a lot of work with the UN as an environment ambassador through Lonely Whale, Mobile Kitchen Classroom, as I mentioned before. And a lot of it was externally focused, like, how am I going to save the world? How am I going to save the ocean? How am I going to help you help yourself? Hey, I'm Adrian Grenier, co-founder of Lonely Whale, and this is Action Planet. I'm not a scientist, but my lay understanding of the science is that the situation is growing more and more urgent. When you take action, your life gets a meaning. When you get a meaning in life, you become happy. When people connect, they care. When you're feeling well and doing well, you have no choice but to be well to the planet. We are up to the task of managing this crisis. And there was one person that I was leaving out of the equation. That was me. Yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that. And also there was an arrogance to my thinking that I was going to give you the answer and that I knew what the answer was for you. But if you learn from permaculture, a resilient system is complex with a lot of diversity and it's not one 
way of thinking, but it's a lot of different perspectives meeting each other. And so I would say, I don't know how, what you need to do in order to be a part of this change, but I would just urge you to take a look at your relationship to money and is it serving you and is it serving the world? And you're going to be able to make that decision. Maybe it's not the right time for you to question quitting that job. That's fine. I I just know for me personally, the times that I've said no to a paycheck to uphold my deeper convictions and my higher values, it's always paid off in dividends, not financially, but in spirit and soul and purpose. And those are the things that are immeasurable. Those are the yields beyond money that enrich our lives, that enrich our souls and that create community, which is the most important thing. Community, nature, family. And for too long, we've been foregoing those things that are here now. I mean, it's possible. Paradise on earth is possible. If we just stop focusing on extraction and exploitation of our resources to make some money and think more about how do we uh, live in right relationship to each other and the natural world. And again, we are already embedded with a network of systems that have been built on an old paradigm of thinking that have been built on extraction and exploitation. So we need to start transitioning out. We need to start creating and experimenting and becoming the laboratories for new ways of being in relationship to money, new ways of creating value, new ways of exchanging value and uh, not get too attached to one solution, but know that we can all contribute something. I believe that there are as many solutions as there are people on the planet and we need your energy. We need your presence and your participation because what you're uh, going to bring to the table is going to be way different than me because you're seeing the world from a different vantage and that is vital and important. But I would say if you're ready to start looking and, re- and exploring and questioning your relationship to money, Charles Eisenstein, I've already mentioned him once. He wrote an excellent book that inspired me called Sacred Economics. Book club, it. it's pretty powerful stuff. It does feel like there is, there needs to be a shift. And I feel as though, and this is, I say this about pretty much all advocacy and activism work, especially being someone that has the privilege of millions of people on my platform. I do think that there is an element of activism that has become very performative. And I think that. I, I think there are a few, there are many things wrong with that. One, one of which is I feel that uh, a lot of these organizations who raise a lot of money for these issues are raising money off of tragedy, off of people's heartache and hardship or some sort of oppression that's happening. And I think it's gotten worse since social media. I'm also a, a UN ambassador. I'm an ambassador for UNICEF, and I have been since 2003. And there is nothing in the world like actually going and doing the work. 
it's something that social media has taken away some of that. Having to go to your community center and find out where you can volunteer or going to your local food bank or just fucking helping your neighbor bring her groceries in. And I talk a lot about your someone's platform who maybe has 250 people rather than millions. And my point is always like, you take care of your circle. And if we all just take care of our own circles, then perhaps the circles will overlap, leaving us to a more inspiring, inspired world. And so I feel like there is a moment that we all need to decide. And I talk, I, have, I have a book coming out in October and I talk a lot about performative activism and how it is, it has become very easy for some PR team to send some celebrity a list of suggested tweets and they put that out there and they're like, I got 5,000 retweets on that. I am now an activist, which is so absurd. But my point is just, we live in this place where we've forgotten connection and so much of what what I think is important and also important about what you talk about is this idea of someone picks my coffee beans from across the globe. Quindío makes up one third of Colombia's coffee triangle where many of the most important coffee plantations are. 525,000 families in Colombia make their living from coffee production. And one of them is Manuel Zabogal's family here at Cumbia Hacienda. It's an ideal place to learn about Colombian coffee from farm to table. What are those situations like that are gifting me this beverage that I love so much? And how can I be that out of touch with where my coffee beans are coming from? Uh, That's a bad example. But this idea of total connection and being aware of uh, where the dots are connected and being hopeful. I'm going to end with this question for you. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is having cha- entirely changed my, my life, my lifestyle and my come from and realizing that I, <laughs> I am capable. I can actually take charge of my life. Personal development has been really something that I like ignored for too long, trying to save everybody and tell the world how to be without looking at this. So, Well, I definitely think most activists have that, just so you don't. I, I definitely think we have a way of wanting to heal people and thinking that we'll heal ourselves. Yeah. So what gives me hope is that I, I realized that I could actually do the work to change myself and heal the things inside of me that were keeping me from being of better service. And, and I, so that I would say that right now, so at Lonely Whale, my ocean organization, we went back into our, our mission vision and we post COVID, we're like, all right, we got to rethink things. And COVID was a blessing in that it, got us all to stop, pause, and rethink what we were doing here and whether it was serving. And we added a line in in our mission vision, and and it was recognizing that self-care 
is ocean care. There's so much anxiety about the state of the world and our oceans in, in collapse. It can be overwhelming and debilitating. And yet we forget that we don't have to go out to the ocean to help. You are an emergent being from nature. You are nature. If you heal yourself, if you take care of yourself, you are doing a great service to nature just by that alone. But then once you can get into solid footing and you're thinking right and you're making good sense of the world, and it's not easy these days, there's a lot of confusing messaging, but if you can take a step and come from like a really strong, stable, resilient place, then by default, the, the, the energy you put out and the decisions you make to help the world will um, be that much more effective. And yes, I agree with you. Start with your inner circle. Start with your inner circle that's right here. This is an important part of, of the world. And once that's, once you've gotten your house in order, move out to your neighborhood, move out to the world, but always check back in with yourself because we need you. We need a lifelong commitment to, to serve the world and serve each other. So don't burn yourself out. Don't collapse under the huge amount of seemingly horrifying news. I mean, maybe turn off the news every once in a while and, and look around and see that maybe things aren't as bad as they want you to think. And, and maybe you can do something about it. Well, Adrian Grenier, you give me hope. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thanks, everyone. I've been doing quite a lot of work with the oceans recently, and I must say there is so much wisdom out there in the water, so much to learn, so much poetry, so much pathos and wonder and beauty. One very important lesson that the ocean teaches is unity. The ocean quite literally connects the entire world, and I believe within this truth is healing for our planet, healing through togetherness. We're all connected. I know it sounds trite and a little cliche, but it's been proven over and over again. The things that are bad for one of us are usually bad for all of us. The things which are bad for our oceans are bad for our fields and our bodies and our souls. I don't think we look at the ability of ethical business to affect real change in the world enough. Whether it's through investing in smart, progressive companies doing good in the world, trade associations banding together to create good standards for business sectors, or individual employers paying a sustainable wage in equitable workplaces, businesses can do things in our culture that others cannot, like lead the way out of the climate crisis. It's why the work Adrian does and Bill McKibben, and so many others out there matters so much. Many of you listening probably have some 401k or investment account. Have you looked at what's in them? Have you pressured the people managing those funds to invest ethically? It's your money, not theirs. You have the power of the purse, and you could pressure them to do the right thing. Capitalism has the potential to be a force for good. But it has to start with us. Let's see how we can get there. Together. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.